Turn your Bibles this evening, if you will, to John chapter 3. I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God. John chapter 3 tells the story of a man named Nicodemus. We'll just start in verse 1. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a, a ruler in the synagogue. He was one of uh, high position in esteem. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher. Now, the fact that he calls him Rabbi means that he recognizes that he's at least equal or in greater stature in some form or another than he is himself. So he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. That's interesting that that's, the, that's a position that most of the Pharisees would not take. The Pharisees were the ones that primarily were the, the, uh, uh, the Jesus' greatest opposition during his earthly ministry. And it was the Pharisees that Jesus spoke to and said, you're of your father the devil. And they claimed that they were of their father Abraham. And he said, if you were Abraham's children, you wouldn't hate me. You wouldn't try to kill me. You wouldn't do to me or against me what you do because that's not what Abraham did. But here's a Pharisee who recognized, just saw things for what they were and recognized it and came to Jesus with a question. And the question is a great question. The King James translation really doesn't identify what the question is, but the, but the question he's asking is, how are you doing this stuff? We know you're coming from God, but how are you doing this stuff? We know you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus answered and says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you don't recognize that there's a question in verse 2, it looks like Jesus is changing the subject. But God doesn't do that with you. You don't ask God a question and then he diverts you to something else. Jesus is answering the question. And notice that he identifies, he connects miracles with the kingdom of God. Notice that's the connection he makes. Now, the, impl the implication is there that Nicodemus recognizes this already. We know you come from God because you can't do these miracles. Nobody can do the miracles that you're doing except God be with somebody. And then Jesus explains, here's how you enter into the miracle realm, which is called the kingdom of, the kingdom of God. You're born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see or experience the kingdom of God. Now then he has a, uh, has a discussion with Nicodemus about what it means to, uh, to be born again. Nicodemus is thinking naturally, how can a man enter into the second time into his mother's womb, that kind of stuff. And Jesus explains that he's talking about a spiritual rebirth. He's talking about being born again in spirit, not in flesh. And so he identifies that. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 9, and then we'll also look at Luke chapter 10. Keep in mind that Jesus identifies or connects miracles with the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Notice he's giving them power over the devil and power over sickness. To heal the sick, in other words. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Notice the connection. The kingdom of God and healing the sick. The kingdom of God is connected with authority over the devil. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 1 and skip around to some verses for the sake of time. It says, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Now he gives them certain instruction, 
We won't go through all the things he says, but notice he says in verse 9, he says, And heal the sick. Here's part of the instruction that he gives them. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is coming to you. He's saying healing the sick is proof that the kingdom of God has come, isn't he? That's what he's telling them to tell the people. Now he tells them this before he's ever been there. He's not the one doing this. He's telling his 70, not just the 12. He's giving instruction to the 70. Here's what I want you to do. Go into every town before I go. Apparently he made his itinerary known in some way. You go here, you go here, you go there. And then he said, when you go into a town, heal the sick and say the kingdom of God has come unto you. It's come near. So healing is connected with the kingdom of God, isn't it? Isn't it? Now remember where we started over in John chapter 3. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? It means to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Right? How many of you have been born again? Well, you've entered into that kingdom of God then if Jesus told us the truth. You've entered into that miracle realm. You've entered into that realm of healing. Now turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter, what is it, chapter 5 I believe it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. Here's Paul instructed by the Holy Ghost to tell us about this new birth experience. What does it mean? How does it work? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It doesn't say he will be. It says he is. Now, the word creature is also translated creation in other translations. So, uh, however you prefer it, a lot of times people you know, reject the word creature because we don't use it in that term or that sense. But he's saying, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. One translation, I like this, one translation says he's a new species of being. I like that. He's a new species of being. Now, Jesus, if you connect what Jesus said with it, that means he's a new species of being because he's entered into the kingdom of God. He's a new creature. He's a new creation in the kingdom of God. That's what makes him a new species of being. This new creation is that he's entered into the kingdom of God. And the Bible has said, we've seen three or four witnesses already, that healing and miracles are a part of that kingdom. Can I ask you a question? Why is it a strange thing for people to see healings or miracles? Why in the church world is it such a phenomenon? Jesus talked about it in a casual sense. Heal the sick and say the kingdom of God's coming to you. If we take what Jesus said, just what Jesus said and not what other people tell us what he meant, if we take just what the Bible says about what Jesus said, then it seems like Jesus expected it. It seems like it was intended to be a commonplace occurrence. He didn't say to, to the 70, and, and please don't think that these are the 12. The instruction that he gave in Luke chapter 10 was to the 70. These are just average guys. I know the church world likes to put the 12 on a, on a pedestal and say, well, they had something special. Well, the 70 didn't. We don't even know who the 70 were. They were just folks who followed Jesus around. He didn't have to go looking for 70 people. He turned and said, okay, now you guys go. Take, you know, pair off in twos and go this place, that place, and the other place. And here's what I want you to do. Heal the sick when you come into a city and say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now he didn't say, now for some of you, it won't work for everybody, but for some of you, there'll be a flash from heaven. 
and then there'll be a miracle that takes place. And when that happens, that's when you say God has done something special. Yet that's the way the modern-day church treats it. If somebody gets healed, if a miracle is done, it's like the modern-day church says, whoa, something really unique has happened here. Where Jesus said it was just part of the kingdom of God. He could very easily have said in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles except God be with him. He could very simply have said, Nicodemus, bless your heart. Nobody will ever do this stuff except me. And I'm going to pick a few, and they're going to have special power, but don't even think about this for yourself. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus said the key to the kingdom of heaven, the key to the kingdom of God, where these miracles are commonplace, is to be born again. How many of you, when you, got, when you were born again, when you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Now, what I'm talking about is, John, well, turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. Maybe I'm taking a little bit too much for granted here. Let's back up a little bit. Let's make sure we all know what we're talking about when we say born again. Here's what Paul identifies being born again as by the Holy Ghost. We see what the result is in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's become a new creation. It's a spiritual rebirth. But here's how it occurs. Romans chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 8. It says, but what saith it? Uh, better back up to verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, he's saying, you don't become righteous because Jesus comes back. Or he comes to do some special work for you. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. He's saying, it's not something extra or additional that Jesus is going to do, either coming back from heaven or rising from the dead, for you or for me or for anybody else to become righteous. The work has already been done. If somebody came tonight and gave their heart to Jesus and asked uh, to be born again or asked God to save them, receive salvation is really a better way to say it. God's not going to have to do one more thing for that person to be saved. Jesus has already done it all. The work is already finished, in other words. So the righteousness of faith is not looking for God to do something more than he's already done, but instead, what does it say? Verse 8, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, you can be saved by what you believe and say here now. That's how you become righteous. That, verse 9, here's how it works, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth all your sins. No, it doesn't say that. Being saved is not a matter of confessing your sins. It says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, in other words, Jesus as Lord, and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Thou shalt be born again. Thou shalt enter into the kingdom of heaven where healings and miracles are commonplace. That's what he's saying. How many of you were taught that when you were born again? Not me. I was born again in a church that wouldn't have known a miracle if it came walking down the road. And would have questioned it if they, if they saw it. Because the apostles did all that stuff. When the last apostle died, that stuff ended. But if you put together what the Bible's saying, how can you draw any other conclusion? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus as your Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For, because, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So notice what he's saying. 
He's saying because of the work that Jesus has already accomplished on the cross through his death, his burial, and resurrection, all you have to do is believe in your heart and say with your mouth, and you can take advantage of everything that he accomplished. And that's what's called salvation. That's how we're born again. That's how we enter into the kingdom of God. That's how we enter into the miraculous realm. That's how you enter into the kingdom of God. That's how you enter into the realm of miracles. That's how you enter into the realm of healing. By believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Jesus doesn't have to do one more thing than he's ever done already for you to be saved or to enter into the miraculous and healing realm. See, so many times people are looking for God to do something to heal them. Well, the Bible's telling you right there in Romans chapter 10, that's not going to happen. That's not how it works. He's not going to do something for you to be healed any more than he's going to do something for you to be saved. Why? Because Jesus has already done it. I used to watch Brother Hagin do this to people to get their attention, and boy, people would get mad. They'd come for healing and, and bless people's hearts. They'd been struggling with things for a long time, and, and he wasn't trying to be mean about it. He was just trying to get their attentions to get them on the right road. If you saw somebody heading down the road that, was, uh, uh, that there was a, a bridge out at the end of that road, you'd be pretty specific about getting their attention to stop them from going down that road, wouldn't you? Well, it's the same thing spiritually. He's trying to get them off the wrong road and onto the right road because the wrong road will take them into destruction and keep them from receiving the things that God wants them to have. So he'd say, he'd say, God's not going to do one thing about your healing. Boy, people would get mad. You mean he's not going to heal me? And every time, Brother Hagin said, that's not what I said. See, that's what everybody heard any time he said that. Because they're looking for something God's going to do down the road that's going to bring them healing. He said, I didn't say that. He said, God's already done everything he's ever going to do about your healing. Oh, you mean he's not going to heal me? I didn't say that. Sometimes you'd have to tell people three or four times. He said, what I said was, he's already done everything he's ever going to do about your healing. And folks, that's true for you and me too. Jesus has already done everything that's necessary for you to be healed. If you're looking for God to do something for you to be healed, you're looking in the wrong direction. We shouldn't look forward to something God's going to do. We should look back to something God's already done. That's how you'd get saved, isn't it? That's how you'd get born again. If you were leading somebody into the prayer of salvation, you wouldn't tell them that God's going to do something to save them. You'd tell them what Jesus has already done on the cross that did save them. So that all they have to do is believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. If you're doing it scripturally anyway. I know a lot of churches don't. It becomes a matter of confession of sins and stuff like that. And the Bible doesn't say one thing about the, about the unbeliever confessing his sins. Not one thing. That's not how you get saved. You get saved by confessing Jesus as your Lord. How could the sinner remember all the sins he committed anyway? It's impossible. No, it's a matter of believing in what Jesus had already done and confessing with their mouth that Jesus is their, their Lord. They choose to accept what he's done, in other words. That's what being born again means. That's exactly what being born again means. And being made a new creature, being born again, means you become a new species of being, a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus that is therefore free from everything that Jesus paid the price for. Now the problem we had was that Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, it says that sin and death began to reign on the earth. Man was without hope. 
There's no way man can make himself righteous. There's no way man can get back to God. He started off as, as God's creation, righteous and in fellowship with him. But when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he lost all of that. He lost his authority. God put Adam on the earth, Adam and Eve on the earth, and he said, you're in charge. In that sense, now listen to what I'm saying, in that sense, Adam was the God of this world. Everything that God made, everything that God created was placed under the authority of Adam. He told Adam, dress and keep the garden. In other words, use your authority to take care of this place. Garden protected is what dress and keep the garden means. Why? Because God knew the enemy was here already. Protect it. Take care of it. You do something with what's been given to you to take care of this place. But Adam didn't do it. Adam disobeyed God. And fell into the devil's trap. It wasn't that he was deceived. The Bible says that he was not deceived. He willingly gave over his authority to Satan. And the Bible says from that moment, sin and death began to rule on the earth. Well, if man needs a Savior, how can the Savior come from the earth? Because sin and death rules upon every man that was born. That's why it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin. He's got to bypass the sin and death that passes upon all men. So God had to do something that was so unique and so different in order to provide mankind a Savior here on the earth. And that was he had to cause a man to be born, uh, the baby Jesus, to be born and bypass the sin and death that came upon all men. In so doing, that's called the incarnation. In so doing, he joined divinity with humanity. He manifested the life and the presence of God here on the earth for the purpose of making a Savior. Jesus was therefore born into the earth free from the dominion of sin and death. What does that mean? That means he was free from sin. There was no sin in him. There was no sin that he was responsible for because he was not born of Adam. He was born of God. That means he was free from sickness because that's a part of the rule and reign of spiritual death. And he was free from poverty. Now, the reason I picked those three things is because those are the three things that Deuteronomy 28 tells us were a part of the curse of the law that Jesus redeemed us from. That's what's identified in the Scripture as spiritual death or the byproducts of spiritual death. Now, remember that the, that the, the curse that God said would come upon Adam, the consequence of Adam was, uh, Adam's disobedience was not that he would sin or become a sinner. He commanded him not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he said, in the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Remember that? Genesis chapter 3. Thou shalt surely die. Well, Adam didn't die physically the day that he ate of the tree. He lived for 930 years after he, com he committed treason against God. After he disobeyed God. 930 years. Well, then what's this death thing he's talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. He's saying, in the day that you eat of the tree that I command you not to eat of, you will die spiritually. And Adam died instantly when he did. And from that moment, spiritual death began to rule and reign over mankind. That means sin began to reign over mankind. That means sickness. That from the point that man became dominated by spiritual death, he did not have the ability to not sin. Why? Because he's dead. He's spiritually dead. Spiritual death means separation from God. So that means he had no defense against sin. It rules over him now. He can't not sin. He can't keep himself pure and righteous and not sin. 
he can't keep himself from being subject to sickness because that's a consequence of spiritual death. It's part of the devil's rule. He can't keep himself from being affected by poverty here on the earth. Remember, that was one of the parts of the curse that Jesus, that uh, God said would come upon mankind because of this transgression. He said, the earth's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. That's poverty in action. I wonder what the earth did before he sinned. I wonder how the earth produced for him before. It indicates that it's a whole new ballgame. Maybe the earth produced because Adam spoke something grow and it grew. I don't know. But it's a different ballgame now. He said, now the earth will bring forth thorns and thistles, and it will only produce by the sweat of your brow. So those are the three things that the Bible identifies as byproducts of of the dominion of death, spiritual death. So when Jesus was born, since he bypassed the curse of death upon mankind, that means he was born free from sin. That means he was born free from sickness. And that means he was born free from poverty. He now has the opportunity, when Jesus was born on the earth and grew up to be a man, Jesus now has the opportunity to operate with the same authority that God gave Adam. Not subject to sin, not subject to sickness, and not subject to poverty. That's why he was able to do miracles in the area of freedom from sin, freedom from sickness, which is healing, and freedom from poverty, which was providing for people. He multiplied the loaves and fishes. Why? Because that's part of the authority that God gave Adam as the God of this world. Now, to us, it's a miracle. To God, it's the way things were supposed to be. Now, folks, I want you to understand that. Freedom from sickness, healing from sickness, seems to us to be a miraculous event that takes some wrapping our heads around. But to God, it's the way it was always supposed to be. That's why Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God and healing and miracles in a casual way. Nicodemus says, wow, look at the miracles and the healings that you're doing. Nobody could do that except God be with them. And Jesus says, we've well, got to be born again. Yeah, but, but, but we were talking about healings and miracles. Yeah, you've got to be born again. No, Jesus, you don't understand. We want to see healings and miracles. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be born again. That's part of the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying, folks. That's how casually it should be in our estimation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should discount it. I'm not saying we should look at it with some kind of, well, that's not important. It's of of great importance, but it should be a natural byproduct of being a part of the kingdom of God. It was a natural byproduct of Jesus' life on the earth. Why? Because he bypassed the dominion of death by being born as a man. The life of God in man enabled him to be born free of sin, free from sickness, and free from poverty. Just because he had the life of God in a human body. What does the Bible say happens when you're born again? Oh, yeah, I see where you're going, Pastor Mike, but it's not like that. Really? Jesus said... In John chapter 10 and verse 10, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. What kind of life was that? Well, Jesus said it was the life that he had in himself that he came to bring you. See, being born again is receiving the same life of God that caused the incarnation to take place. When a person is born again, when you were born again, you are just as much 
Please listen to me. Don't turn your heads off until I finish. I don't mean finish tonight. I mean finish this statement. So listen just for a little while, okay? When you were born again, you are just as much the manifestation of the life of God in a human form as when Jesus was born into the earth. You are the life of God manifest in flesh. That's what being a new creation means. That's what being born again is talking about. It means that you instantly became free from sin, from sickness, and from poverty. That sounds good, doesn't it? How do we make that real? Well, the same way that you received freedom from spiritual death or deliverance from spiritual death by being born again, you believed in your heart and you said with your mouth. So you access freedom from the aspects or the consequences of spiritual death in the same way. Now that you are born again, now that you've been made this new creature, new creation, new species of being, free from the dominion of death, and Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, sin has no more dominion over you. Now you can continue to sin if you want to. You can continue to go through your Christian life thinking that you don't have power and authority to stop sinning. That's up to you. But God said, because you've been made this new creature, because you are now the life of God manifest in the flesh, you are no longer under the dominion of spiritual death. That means you're no longer under the dominion of any of the aspects, characteristics, or consequences of that spiritual death, meaning sin, meaning sickness, meaning poverty. Now, it's up to us whether we believe it or not. That's just what the Bible says. Now, that's the point where some people just turn off. They'll say, well, that may be what the Bible says, but we know it doesn't work like that. Well, okay. When we get to heaven, I'll let you ask God about that. I'll let you ask God, how come you lied in your word? Now, nobody's gonna, nobody would think to do that. Nobody would consider that I'm going to look God in the face and say, you lied when you said that we were free from all this stuff. Well, of course nobody's going to do that. But that's what we do when we take sides against what he said. We're calling his word a lie. We're saying, well, I just don't see it that way. Or I just can't believe it that way. Or I just can't understand it. Whatever reason you want to give for not accepting it as truth and acting thereon is calling God a liar. That always gets a lot of amens. Let me say it again. When you were born again, you were just as much a manifestation of the life of God as when Jesus was born in the manger. Just as much. Just as much. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. John starts off, let's just begin in the, in, the, uh, in the first verse. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto the servant John. By the way, the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus, not a revelation of bad stuff. Well, 
lot of people get in the book of Revelation and they say, oh, they get bogged down. I don't know what's going on. The book of Revelation is about a revelation of Jesus. It's about finding out who Jesus is. It's not about finding out all the bad stuff that's going to happen in the tribulation. There is information about things that will happen in the tribulation. But John said that the revelation, the book that he wrote by revelation, was a revelation of Jesus. So if you come away with the book of, from teaching in the book of Revelation without a knowledge of Jesus, a greater knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do, you've missed the whole purpose of the book. Which, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, means that a lot of people that are teaching on the book of Revelation are missing the point. Okay, verse 2. Who bear record of the word of God, talking about John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and all the things that he, John, saw? Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. There's a blessing to understanding the book of Revelation, folks. Okay. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, notice this phrase, and the first begotten from the dead. Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. Now, what death is he talking about? He's got to be talking about spiritual death. Jesus was the first begotten or firstborn from spiritual death. Hold your finger here and turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 again. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we read verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is, not going to be, but he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now, we know that all things, natural things don't pass away. You don't get a new hair color when you get born again. If your eyes were blue before, they're, they're blue after you get saved. If your hair was brown before you got saved, your hair's brown after you get saved. If you didn't have hair before you got saved, getting saved doesn't give you hair. Right? So it's not natural things that change. Well, then what, cha what things change? Spiritual. Spiritual things. Old things, spiritual things pass away. You being subject to spiritual death passes away. And behold, all things become new spiritually. Verse 18, and all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. The word reconcile means to make a mutual exchange. That means one thing paying the price or as a substitute for something else. So it says, God has reconciled us unto himself. There was an exchange, a mutual exchange that was made. Jesus was righteous. We were dead. Jesus was alive. Let me, let me use compatible terms. Jesus was righteous. We were unrighteous. Jesus was alive. We were dead. There was a mutual exchange. Jesus took our death and gave us his life. He took our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness. That's the mutual exchange. He became something that you were so that you could become what he is. That's what this means. And that's what reconciled us to God. That's the reason why God's never against you. He's always on your side because you've been reconciled. God couldn't be against you any more than he could be against Jesus. And it, Jesus' earthly life was pretty good evidence that he was on his side, don't you think? Even Nicodemus recognized that. He said, nobody could do the stuff you're doing, the healings and the miracles that you're doing, except God be with him. That means on your side. Now that means God's on your side in the same way that he was on Jesus' side when he was here on the earth. 
I'm glad this is exciting you. And God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, our ministry, the preaching of the gospel, is supposed to be to tell people that the exchange was made. Not confess your sins, not you terrible thing, here's what's going to happen to you if you don't straighten up. The ministry of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the kingdom of God is that Jesus paid the price for you. That's why it's good news, because you don't have to do anything except accept what he did. To wit, in other words, here's how it worked. God was in Christ. That means the life of God was in Jesus. That's how he was born as a, as a baby here on the earth. The life of God was in Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses, the world's trespasses unto them, and is committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The good news is God's not against you. Jesus paid the price. Come give your heart to Jesus because God's on your side. The reason he sent Jesus was so you could come in and, and accept the exchange that he made. That's the good news, and that's supposed to be the gospel that we preach. Now then, we are ambassadors. Now then, meaning now that we're saved, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, he's saying, now that you're saved, live like it. Now, folks, how does an ambassador live? If you're an ambassador to a foreign country, maybe it's a third world country and people are in poverty there, do you go live in poverty? No. How do you live? Very well. Why? Because you're backed by the country that you came from and that you belong to. You're backed by heaven. So you're not supposed to live the way the world lives down here. That's what it means to be an ambassador. You're supposed to live above the level that the world or the unsaved live here on the earth. Well, how do they live? They live subject to sin. They live subject to sickness. They live subject to poverty. Why? Because they're dead. You're not. You're alive. The life of God is in you. Therefore, you're free from sin. And you should live free from sin. You're free from sickness and should live free from sickness. You're free from poverty and should live free from poverty. That's what Paul's saying in verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God for, because he has made him to be sin for us. Here's how the exchange was made. God made Jesus to be sin. Now, notice this does not say sins, plural. It says sin, singular. When the Bible speaks of sin, singular, it's talking about spiritual death. It's talking about that which brought the dominion of spiritual death upon the earth. It's talking about the rule and the reign of spiritual death that still holds the unsaved. God made Jesus to be sin. Literally, Jesus died spiritually. Now, how'd that happen, Pastor Mike? Don't really know. But I know that that's the only thing that could have, been, could have possibly happened and taken place in order for the mutual exchange to take place. See, if, a lot of times people look at it, and, and this is the way I grew up hearing about the cross of Jesus. God laid sin upon Jesus. They'd use that term all the time. God laid sin upon Jesus on the cross. Well, I'm thinking, okay, that means he laid sin on him. That means that he wasn't really sin. He didn't really become this, but he just took it on himself and paid the price just like you'd carry a load. So Jesus carried the load of sin paid the price, and then we were made righteous. But the Bible says that there was an exchange, a mutual exchange. In other words, you can't be any more righteous than he was made unrighteous. You can't be any more alive than he was dead. 
That means if Jesus didn't really die, he just carried sins upon himself, then that means you're not really alive like he was. That means the life of God is not equal with what Jesus had, as the Bible tells us. We can't be one in Christ with the Father. It means we have a second generation salvation. We've got a similar type of salvation, but it's not the same thing. Well, if it's not the same thing, then how can we do the works of Jesus? Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do because I go to my Father. In other words, he's saying, because of this mutual exchange that's going to take, in, take place, you'll do even greater things than me. How's that possible if we don't have his salvation? How's it possible if we don't have his life? How's it possible if we don't have his righteousness? Because Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you can't do miracles and healings unless you're part of the kingdom of God. And to be a part of the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. That means the life of God. That means righteous. Any of this sinking in? I don't mind you being quiet. I just want, want to make sure you're getting what I'm trying to say. So, verse 21 again, for he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. He had no sin of his own, so the sin that he was made was the sin of mankind. Spiritual death, in other words. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that or so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, the word made is used twice there. It literally means a nature that you become. Jesus in his nature, his spirit, which went into the earth when he died on the cross, his spirit was made sin or death, spiritual death, literally, on our behalf or in our place. Now, I know a lot of people have trouble with the fact that, we, that, we, that I say that Jesus died spiritually. And what that means is Jesus had to go into the lower part of hell. Because it's easier to think that Jesus, when he was on the cross and he took, looked at the two thieves and one of them said, you know, uh, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you today, I shall, thou shalt be with me in paradise. It's easier to think that Jesus went to paradise. But that's not what he's saying. In the original language, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you today, not today I'm going to paradise. He said, Verily I say unto you today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Well, the Bible says Jesus went to paradise, but it says he went to paradise and led captivity captive. Now, we know what paradise was. Luke chapter 16 tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus went into the lower parts of the earth. He went into hell where it was a place of torment. And I'm sorry, the rich man went to, to hell, the place of torment. And Lazarus went into Abraham's bosom. That's what was called paradise. It was a place of comfort. Now, let me ask you a question. If you died without Jesus, where would you go? As an unrighteous individual, where would you go? Would you go to the lower parts of hell, which is the place of the unrighteous dead? That's what Hades means. It means the place of the unrighteous dead. Or would you go to paradise, which means the one looking for the promise? The holding place for those who are looking for the promise. Where would you go? Well, I wouldn't taught anything about the promise. I wouldn't taught anything about a Messiah to come. I wouldn't taught about Abraham's blessing or Abraham's covenant or any of that kind of stuff. None of that would have been available for me. I would have had to die the death of the unrighteous because I was unrighteous. So if Jesus only went to paradise, that means there's a part of what belongs to me he didn't pay. 
That means Jesus would have only paid the price for the righteous dead, meaning the Jews who believed in the Messiah to come. That means salvation would only be for the Jews and not for the Gentiles. We've got a problem with that, don't we? So Jesus, if he was made sin, if he was made spiritual death, he had to go into hell, into Hades, where he suffered the punishment for all of mankind's sins. He paid the price for all of man's sins. But after three days, he was raised from the dead, stopped by paradise, where he saw the, the thief on the cross, along with all the others, Abraham and all the others that are waiting. And he said, now, fellas, we finished it up. I fulfilled the covenant. Let's go to the Father. And he led captivity captive. That's what that means. He took with him those were, were, that were bound in paradise, waiting for the fulfillment of the Messiah's work. When Jesus fulfilled the work, he took them with him into heaven. There is no paradise now. There is no separate place of paradise, unless you want to call heaven paradise, and that's okay if you want to do that. But there is no separate place called paradise anymore. There is no purgatory. There is no, none of this other kind of stuff that religions invent for themselves. There's heaven and there's hell. And that's it. There's a place of those who were saved and believe in the name of Jesus. And there's a place for the unrighteous dead. That's all there is. So some people get uptight about it when we say Jesus died spiritually. And that's what we mean. Jesus went to hell. But if he didn't, then that means we've got to tear 2 Corinthians chapter 5 out. Because the Bible says very specifically in, in verse 21 that he was made to be sin. That means he was made spiritually dead. That means he died spiritually in order so that you could be made or take the nature of eternal life upon yourself. If Jesus didn't take that upon his nature, then you can't take the life of God in your, as a part of your nature. They're equal terms. You are only made a new creature in the same degree that he was made death or spiritual death, which the Bible identifies as sin, singular. You see where I'm going with this? So what does that mean now? For he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, means Jesus died spiritually, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, did you hold your finger over in Revelation chapter 1? Turn back with me there. Verse 5 again, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten, firstborn, literally is what the word begotten means, firstborn from the dead. He can't be talking about natural death, physical death, because Jesus was not the first person raised from the dead. We've got instances in the Old Testament where people were raised from the dead. We've got Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We've got Jesus raising the young boy that was in the middle of Jesus wrecked the funeral. By touching the coffin, the little boy and the young boy was raised up from the dead. Jesus was not the first one raised from physical death. We've got the Bible proving. Well, if it's not physical death, he's talking about being born again from, or the first born from. What's he talking about? It's saying Jesus was the first person that was born again from spiritual death. Now, why does it say he was the first one? Well, the fact that he says that he was the first one born from spiritual death means there must be others to come. Otherwise, he'd be the only one born from spiritual death. But it doesn't say that. It says Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. Now, what does this mean? That means that when the life of God came back upon Jesus, listen to the way I say this. 
In order for Jesus to be spiritually dead in the pit of hell, paying the price for you and me, in order for him to be made sin, made spiritually dead, that means the life of God had to depart from him. There's no other way you can be spiritually dead. You can't be alive, have the life of God in you, and be spiritually dead. God and the devil do not cohabit in the same location. He's either alive unto God or he's spiritually dead. One or the other. It cannot be both. Well, the Bible tells us which one it is. He was made sin. In other words, he died spiritually. In the same way that Adam died spiritually when he disobeyed God, Jesus died spiritually when he obeyed the plan of God to become the Savior for mankind. I believe that took place. Finally, I believe it was progression, but I believe it took place finally on the cross where he gave up the ghost. The Bible says darkness covered the earth for a space of three hours. I think that is the point where Jesus even declared, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's saying, Father, why have you turned your back on me? He's not asking a question saying, oh, gee, I never knew this was going to happen. The Bible says that after Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they identified him as the Christ. It says he plainly began to teach them that he was going to Jerusalem. He would be killed and raised again the third day. It's not like he doesn't know the plan. So when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's fulfilling Old Testament scripture about the Messiah to tell us what would happen. Not that it's a surprise to him. He's not saying, oh, no, I didn't know this was going to occur. He's fulfilling the prophecy. He's saying what the, what the Old Testament Scripture said that the Messiah would say. He's identifying, Father, I know that we're at the point where now the sin of mankind becomes my nature. Spiritual death that has taken dominion over mankind has come upon me willingly. You're placing the punishment of man upon me now. And the earth goes dark, signifying that there is no help for mankind because at that moment and for the next three days, Jesus was completely in the hands of the devil. He was bound by spiritual death. Now Psalm 80, 88, I think it is, tells us about some of the things that happened. We won't go back there to look, but uh, where Jonah begins to speak of some things. It's easy to think that it's talking about Jonah in the belly of the fish, and some of those verses in Psalm 88 do talk about that, but it talks about a lot of other things happening there that wouldn't happen in the belly of a fish. It's talking about Jesus in the pit of hell. It's talking about how the waves and the anger of God break upon him time and time and time again. The English language is not real good, but if you look up the, the Hebrew words that are used, it talks about the awesomeness of God's fury that came upon the one that's being spoken of, which could only be Jesus. Folks, you need to realize this was not with a wink and a nudge that Jesus paid the price for mankind. This was a legal arrangement. God had to do it in a legal manner so that the price was literally paid, which means Jesus had to suffer every moment of it. Just like you would have suffered for eternity had he not come. But there came a point where that punishment ended there came a moment where the price was paid and when that price was paid the bible says that jesus was justified when the price was paid at that moment at that instant and i don't believe it was one second longer than it had to be at that moment 
Jesus received the life of God back into himself. He was born again, the first begotten, first born from the dead. The life of God comes back upon him just like it came upon you when you made Jesus your Lord and Savior. The only difference is Jesus was in the pit of hell when it happened and you and I are not. No matter what hellish situation we might be encountering here on the earth when we get saved, it had no comparison to where Jesus was. But that's the only difference. And at that moment, Jesus was raised from the dead because we were justified. Not for his own sake, but because we were justified. Because now we are free from sin, from sickness, and from poverty. And that's the new creature that you became. It's not a new creature in the sense that it never happened before. It happened first with Jesus. Folks, you are the same manifestation of the life of God in human form as Jesus was when he was born in the earth with the same authority that has been delegated to Jesus as the head of the church seated at the right hand of God the Father. You're just as much a child of God as Jesus is seated at the God's right hand. You're just as much a manifestation of God's life in spirit as Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Only difference, he's got a redeemed body, you've still got a human body. That's the only difference between you, you and Jesus right now in that sense, positionally. That's the only difference. Now, there's a big difference between him and us in that he earned it and we were given it as a gift. He's the creator with the creation. Big difference in that sense, in that context. But positionally, what belongs to us, there is no difference between the life that he now has and the life that you now have. There is no difference between what that life provides. Freedom from spiritual death, freedom from sin, freedom from sickness, freedom from poverty. How much trouble do you think Jesus has with sickness at the right hand of the Father? I'm guessing not too much. Why? Because he's the first begotten from the dead. Because the life of God makes him free from that sickness. Now, folks, you understand that I'm, I'm uh, saying some things casually that don't really fit. There's no sickness in heaven, which ought to tell us God's attitude about sickness. If God was into sickness, he'd have it in heaven. He's not into sickness. It's never his will. He didn't plan for it here on the earth. It wasn't here when he created the earth. It was a byproduct of spiritual death. But the life of God is the same. You've got the same life of God in you that Jesus has in him now. You have the same nature in spirit that is Jesus' nature. You literally are one in Christ. If you took two bottles of water and boiled them together, how could you separate the water out from one another? You can't. That's the way it is with you being in Christ. Your nature is his nature. Your life is his life. Once they're combined, there's no separating them out. No way to know the difference. No way to tell the difference. No way to say one water has one power and another water has another power. Once they're mixed, they're both the same in every respect. Therefore, you have the same authority over sickness as Jesus has now at the right hand of God the Father. You have the same authority over poverty that Jesus has now at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus' life, the four Gospels, are a perfect example of how Jesus dealt with the circumstances of life while that life of God was in him in human form. It shows us how to live. 
verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the first begotten, the firstborn of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. What do you think we're supposed to be kings over? I want to rule Lake Forest. I don't know what you want, but I want, that's my territory. Well, no, he's not talking about physical territory. He's not talking about the earth's geography. He's not talking about kings over the natural things of the earth. He's talking about kings over spiritual things. He's made us spiritual kings and priests unto God. Well, what are we supposed to be kings over? Kings exercise dominion, don't they? What are we supposed to exercise dominion over? The thing that we've been born free from, sin, sickness, and poverty. That's what you're supposed to be king over. You're supposed to be a king over sin in your life. You've been made a king over sickness in your life. You've been made king over poverty in your life. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, if I've been made a king over sin, sickness, and poverty, why am I having so much trouble with those things? Well, they're all part of the kingdom of God, aren't they? Healings and miracles are part of the kingdom of God, and you entered into the kingdom of God by being born again. But remember, wait a minute, let's go back to that in Romans chapter 10. How were we born into the kingdom of God? By looking for God to do something to make us prosperous? Or looking for God to do something to make us healed? Or looking for God to do something to cause us to be saved? Nope. It's all on us. Because Jesus has already done everything that will ever need to be done. We believe in our heart what God's Word says. And we speak with our mouth what God says belongs to us. That's what brought you into the kingdom. It's what brings you into healing. It's what brings you into prosperity. Believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. And folks, that's exactly the principle that Jesus used in every situation he encountered here on the earth. That's how he cursed the fig tree and it dried up the next morning. He believed in his heart and he said with his mouth because he told the disciples that's how it works. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. If Jesus appeared here right now, right in front of us, and everybody could see him in physical form, or with our physical eye at least. If Jesus appeared and says, okay, I've got a word from heaven for you. I am now dispatched from the throne of Almighty God to tell you that from this moment forward, every word that you say will come to pass. And then disappears. Will that change how you talk? Guess what? He already said that in Mark eleven twenty three. 23. He said, this is a spiritual law that always works. You will have what you say. You will have what you say. You will have what you say. That may not be as dramatic as the, 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 the picture that I just painted, but it's saying the same thing. You will have what you say. What are you saying about sickness? What are you saying about sin? See, so many people get caught up in this, well, I just feel so unworthy. Well, who cares how you feel? What do you say? I say I'm free from sin. What about sickness? Well, you know, the doctor says that it looks bad. What do you say? I'm sure the doctors are doing all they can to try to help, but what do you say? I say what the Bible says. 
Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and with the stripes I am healed. Yeah, but what about the, when the, I, went, I started doing that, Pastor Mike, and went back to the doctor, and he said things are getting worse. Okay. How does that change anything? Jesus still said you'd have what you say. He didn't say you'd have what you say overnight. Wouldn't that have been great? If he'd given us a time limit, then we'd know how long to take. We'd know how long to hold fast our confession. But he didn't. But he did say, you'll have what you say. Well, how long do we have to do this, Pastor Mike? Till you get it. What do you say about your finances? You say what it looks like? You complaining about the price of gas? Folks, I'm not concerned about the price of gas. Never have been. Uh, well, I've got an electric car now, so I guess that's not a good example to use. But even with the price of gas going up or the price of electricity or anything else going up, so God will supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Yeah, it might be more comfortable if gas was $2 a gallon instead of 4 or 5 or whatever it is now. <laughs> so good not to know. That makes me like President Obama. Neither one of us care about the price of gasoline. So it might be more convenient if it was $2 a gallon. But how does that change God either way? It doesn't. Because God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If things keep going up, that means God has to just increase his supply. And he doesn't have any problem with that. So what do you say? That's the whole point, folks. What are you saying? What are you saying? These are things that are natural. These are things that are automatic. These are things that are inherently a part of the kingdom of God. You have been born again and therefore born free from sin, sickness, and poverty. And all you have to do is accept what the Bible says about it and say it from your heart. And keep saying it until it becomes reality. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the wonderful things that you accomplished for us. Lord, we don't even know how to relate to the, to the things that you suffered on our behalf. The Bible gives us a glimpse, but there's no way it could adequately describe to us all the things that you willingly endured. But we know that you endured it because of the joy set before you. Even though you recoiled from it, even though you hated the cross, despising the shame, you chose to do it because of a joy that is set before you. We know that joy was not anything that provided for you. That joy was in us receiving your life, your righteousness, and becoming new creatures in Christ Jesus. Thank you, therefore, Father, that you've made us kings and priests unto God. We exercise dominion over the effects of spiritual death here in this earth. We're free from spiritual death because we've made you Lord of our lives. But we exercise dominion over spiritual death. We exercise dominion over sin in our lives. We refuse to be sinners because we've been filled with the life of God. We exercise dominion over sickness in our lives. We refuse to allow sickness to remain in our bodies because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we were healed. We refuse to be dominated by or hindered by poverty. Because Jesus was made poor for our sakes. That we might be made rich through his sacrifice. Thank you Father. That our words come to pass because your words cannot fail. In Jesus precious name. Amen. Amen. Well God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night.